Lord, since eternity is yours, do you not already know of what we speak to you? Or do you see in time what passes in time? Why then do we so often speak to you in time? Truly, we do not pray so you will learn from us, but to stir up our devotion towards you. We pray so that we may say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We have said it already and we will say it again. We do this for the love of your love. For we pray also, and yet truth, that is, Jesus himself has said, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So it is our affections that we lay open to you, confessing our own miseries and your mercies on us. Through prayer you may free us wholly. Through prayer you may cease you may cease to be miserable in ourselves and blessed in you. Through prayer we see how you have called us to become poor in spirit and meek and mourners, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Through prayer we learn to become merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. See, we have told you many things, as we could and as we would, because you first wanted us to confess to you, our Lord God, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. God's people said, Amen. This morning we're working through um, the second section of Malachi. If you recall, we talked um, briefly about how Malachi is uh, broken up into six sections based on six questions, which are really accusations God has against his people. And he puts words in their mouth. They dialogue back and forth. This second section deals specifically with the relationship between God and his people in worship. We looked uh, last week at the first three points of this section, who we worship, which was in verse 6, the offering that God requires for worship, that was 6 to 10, and then the goal of worship, which was verse 11. This morning, we're going to look at how we worship, and it's this full section, but I've, I've tried to break it down into two bigger chunks so that we can kind of work through this together. The first is from uh, chapter 1, verse 12, through, through the end of the chapter, verse 14. So 1, 12 through 14. This is wearisome worship wearisome worship. Then we'll turn to the second chapter and look at those first nine verses, one through nine, and this is plead for your pastors. Plead for your pastors. So wearisome worship, and then plead for your pastors. So let's let's jump right in. This wearisome worship. Uh, if you remember, uh, verse six At the beginning of this section, um, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name. We we talked about last week how um, there is this father title given to God. It's a tenderness um, uh, of the Lord seeking his own children out, his loving them and and, uh, providing for them. And this week I said we would look at master, and we're going to look at that very briefly. Uh, The word there for master, many of you are probably familiar, it's the word Adonai. It's the word Lord. And the problem with the term Lord or master is just like when we think of human fathers, we try to go to God, we, we add all of these incorrect ideas about God. If we think about earthly masters or earthly kings and try to put that on God, we'll, we'll 
will have all these wrong notions about what it means for God to be a master. In fact, I, I think the only thing uh, close, other than if we could switch in the scriptures and go look at David for a while, is something actually of our own imaginations. What do I mean? I, many of you might be familiar of the, with the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Court. Um, it's completely fictional, but the idea is, is to have this perfect idea of what it is to be a king and to have a kingdom. The king, Arthur, rules with justice and equity and righteousness. He creates Camelot, the great fortress of his people, and, and he creates the round table so there's knights who defend his people. And they do that with mercy and compassion, but also in uprightness. And the whole story, if you, if you know it well, and there's many versions of it, but in general, if you know the whole story, as the king goes, so does the kingdom. As Arthur is gentle and kind and ruling well, his people follow after. And they're a people of righteousness and goodness. And yet, even with a story like that, where we try to put all of our hopes for what a great kingdom of earth might be, it falls far short of just how great our God is. You see, at least in one, one way, I'm not going to deal with all of them, a human king like Arthur could only provide for the body. He could set up righteous rules and justice, but could never really get to the souls of his people. Our God, who is our master, doesn't just provide for our bodies, but the Lord created worship to secure our souls to himself. And, and as we come to the text this morning, that's exactly where the Israelites are. They had to believe that the worship that God instituted, this whole sacrificial system, all of this that they were called to do was the goodness and love of God for them. Now, I want you to put yourselves for a moment in the shoes of a typical Israelite. Perhaps you're a shepherd sleeping in the fields day and night. It's very common practice. There's constant worry of cold and hunger and predators. The thing is, your whole family sleeps with you in the field. So there's nights you toss and turn, wondering, will my children make it through the night in the field? And all the while, while you're doing that, while you're, while you're trying to keep your household going in the right direction, you have the job of marking out all of the best of your herd. Every firstborn male that opened the womb, that's the Lord's. Any, any sheep that's out there, any goat that's out there that's, that's healthy without blemish, that has to be separated for sacrifice. You see, all those were reserved for temple worship. And how has that worship done anything to secure the welfare of your household? Or maybe you're a vine dresser. All year long, you tend to the olive trees waiting for the first buds of spring. Olive trees require a lot of work. And you know those first fruits. You know those first fruits. They're often the very best. They make the very best oil. They're the, the sweetest and the most satisfying. But they belong to the Lord. The first tithing of the first fruits for his harvest festivals. And whatever has honoring the worship of the Lord done to provide financial stability for your home. Or you might be a farmer 
Picture yourself working your parents' farm. They're old. They can't provide for themselves any longer. And all of your other siblings, they've gone off. They've, the, the Lord's provided spouses for them. They've started their own households. They have their own fields. They've left you to tend to the fields of your parents. You have to watch daily the sky and the soil, being careful to plant the right crop at the right time. You have to keep back some seed for the future harvest and a tenth for the free will offerings of the Lord's worship. Every day you see the fruit grow up, bud, and give forth. And all the while you know that a good portion, a large portion of that will never go to help you be free so you can marry who you want. Worship has only ever cost you your dreams. You see, the Israelites knew that they couldn't completely negate worship. They, they, they had painful memories of what it was like for their fathers and their forefathers. When they went after all these other gods, when they, when they forsook the temple, they knew what the punishment was if they just completely checked out. Matthew Henry says this, the, the people were so far convinced of their duty that they would bring sacrifices, so they know they can't lay off. They did not wholly admit the duty, but what did they do? They brought vain oblations, mocked God, and deceived themselves by bringing the worst that they had. You see, God's people could not see what good they could get from worshiping God. It didn't seem to improve their life at all. It didn't fix their bodily needs. It only made them poorer. It wasn't practical. It cost them time and energy. There was no therapeutic effect. They often left worship without feeling very good about themselves at all. And so they hedged their bet. They would give God something like what he commanded. Surely God is merciful, right? But they'd also keep from paying the full cost of worship. And frankly, that's what we see all the way up to Jesus' own day, as the people gathered in the temple to fulfill their sacrificial duties. We read Matthew this morning. The money changers had found a way to make worship happen while all the while taking in money for themselves at the exact same time. They were selling doves, right? And animals to make sure that sacrifices could happen. And what does Jesus do when he shows up? He turns over the tables and reminds them that the temple was to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer? The money changers would never have denied that. Surely prayer was happening all over the temple. In fact, what they were doing was enabling prayer, was enabling worship, wasn't it? In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the, ta if, the, if the money changers every morning got up and actually had prayed for a good day's take. The problem was not a lack of worship, but a deception in their hearts that they could worship God and have the world at the exact same time. And we must be very careful not to fall into that same deception or foolishness. Because here's, here, here's the problem with deception, brothers and sisters. You don't know when you're deceived. You don't know when you're deceived. And so the Israelites, they dishonored God by seeing his worship as wearisome. They looked no further than the burning of the sacrifice, and they thought it was a pity to burn it if it was good for anything else. And although Christ has come to remove the sacrificial system, we're still bound by Christ 
the perfect lawgiver to worship the Lord. We discussed last week how the Lord is still seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. The heavy burden of having to raise livestock or crops and haul them to the temple and offer them up as a burnt offering has ceased. Praise the Lord for that. But God still gathers us every week for the purpose of praising him and receiving the gift of his love, grace, and comfort uniquely offered in public worship. The temple made with hands is destroyed, but the second commandment still stands as a blessed duty for us to fulfill. Yet, despite having the heaviness of the mosaic sacrifices removed, you and I, we still struggle with the very same sinful attitudes and desires that Israel did. We look at the time it takes away from our Sunday to gather when there's so many other good things I could be doing. We know that the Lord requires our absolute attention. But you know what? There's a week to plan for, isn't there? And business to be done come Monday. Our affections are supposed to be set on God, but who knows? Who knows how real my fears or anxieties are to me right now? And we can't see how worshiping God will make us at all better off. Israel was stuck between that rock and a hard place. The Mosaic law was clear, and the principle is repeated even in verse 14. If they withheld what God had commanded, there was a curse. But if they gave what was required in their own minds, they would lose out. Everything seemed to be a burden. But the Lord's desire was never for, that, for it to be like that for his people. There was a time, much like the days of Malachi, when Isaiah addressed a very similar situation. Isaiah 43:22 says, Yet you do not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. Hear that? They're, they're, they're finding the worship of God wearisome. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. Now listen to what God says. I have not burdened you with offering or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet candy with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. See, the, the Lord was never after their goods, but he was out for their very good. He desired to be near his people and to satisfy them with himself, not allowing them to go after the things which will fail and fade and fall away. The sacrifices were an external symbol of their dedication to God, of their saying, better is the Lord than even the fat of the offering. God didn't want it to be wearisome. He didn't want it to lay it on their shoulders. It wasn't supposed to be hard. It was supposed to be joyous. Micah 3, or Micah 6, 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. 
O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shitham to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You see, the people were only wearied because they forgot what God was like. The Lord who worked everything out for their good to bring them near to him. The cost was to be weighed against the glory of having the covenant-keeping God for their own. Brothers and sisters, worship is always costly. But what do we get in its exchange? That's what Israel had forgotten. They had forgotten Mike, uh, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Well, this morning, we don't want to be a people who hedge our bets, do we? How are we to give ourselves to the worship of the Lord? What should we do? Well, we must do what Israel did not. And frankly, what we cannot do for ourselves. No, as I walk through this, this is not a, a checklist that you can fulfill. This is a call to fall on our face before the living God. The first thing is we got to see that our great need is not in terms of physical goods, but spiritual life that can only come from God. You see, when, when you stop putting your hope and trust, when you stop living for and going after the things of this world, then worship makes sense. Worship will make sense. When, when we see that we're spiritually bankrupt and destitute, when we see that we're really corrupt idolaters, then Christ becomes very precious to us. My son and I are, are working through Proverbs 27.7. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. What the proverb is teaching us is if, if you're really after everything else, you're full. You're finding pleasure in the world. What have you need of Christ and the gospel? But if you see yourself as hungry, desperately needy, absolutely empty of any righteousness, then any little thing from the Lord is sweet, including his worship, especially his worship. Second, you have to, you and I have to look on worship as the Lord Jesus Christ being brought near to us by his spirit. We think so often and so wrongly that worship is something we do for God forgetting that God has no need of our worship. We don't make him glorious. We don't make him full. No, instead, we have a need. We have a need. We have a need of having the Lord Jesus Christ be very near to us, to help us, to strengthen us. And how does that happen? Baptist Catechism question 93 says this, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? In other words, how are we going to draw on the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we going to taste and see that the Lord is good? Answer, the outward and ordinary means. What has God given and said, this is how it will happen. Whereby Christ communicates to us the benefit of redemption are his ordinances. His ordinances especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. 
You see, when we come to worship, God has given us specific things to do, specific things to be active on, specific things to work through. Not to labor us, not to be like a, a cow plowing a field with a heavy a yoke on us, difficult and hard, but instead for our joy. What if I told you this morning that you could have a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ if you went downtown on King Street and I told you the exact location? How many of you, as soon as we were done, would run off to go to King Street to have the face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? I bet you most of you would. Most of you. And yet the Lord has said, better than me telling you a specific time and place where you can see the bodily Lord Jesus Christ, I have given you worship in the church where you can be guaranteed that Christ is there. And you can have him in all his fullness. Isn't that joyous? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that better? It is, brothers and sisters, it is. How? Well. The word, which is Christ's word, convinces us of our sins. It shows us our need of Christ. And then builds us up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. The word comes along. It says, here's Jesus who's done everything for you. Fulfilled the law perfectly. Made the Father's love acceptable. Given you all his graces. Comforted you in the Holy Spirit. Look to him. Trust in him. Baptism. Baptism is a sign of being engraved into Christ, of having our sins removed and of belonging to God in newness of life. It's a, it's a sign to say you're written, beloved, in his very wounds. You've been washed, so you're no longer an alien or a foreigner seen for just your sin, but now you live the Christ-centered, Christ-empowered life the one that knows the joy of the Father. The supper. What is the supper? Other than coming together and seeing Christ and partaking of him spiritually, not physically. It's not his actual body and blood, but spiritually, we eat of him. And what happens? He nourishes us. He builds us up. He causes us to grow. Prayer. Prayer assures us of being brought near to God, that Christ is constantly praying for us as well, that he's done everything to remove the barrier between us and the Lord, that the, court, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the veil has been torn, and now the presence of God is with us, and that we can continually receive his mercies. You see, the means of grace are how the Spirit comforts us. Christ gives us grace, and we know the Father's love. Isn't worship awesome and wondrous and good? The third thing we have to do, we have to see our need of it. We have, we have, to, we have to pay attention to it. We have to come exactly where God has promised and be assured that he's going to do this. The third thing, then, is we must take corporate worship into private worship. We're not supposed to take corporate worship in the private worship. Baptist question 95. How is the word to be read and heard that it may be effectual to salvation? So we know that the preaching is what's going to do it. We know it's the reading, the public reading of the word in the church. That's where we're going to find this guaranteed grace. 
because we find Christ who is grace. Answer, that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence. So you have to pay attention to it. Preparation and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Do you see, you see what has to happen? Is what we receive here on the Lord's Day then has to go out into the week. We have to take what we heard this morning and so treasure it, so treasure the way that Christ gave himself to us that tomorrow when we wake up, all we want is more of that. That we would think on that and desire that. And then as the week goes on and, and it's hard and we're, and we're trying to live out that very preached word, we look then to the next Lord's Day, anticipating that when we get there, he will water our souls again and give us what we need for the next week. And so the content of our private worship should, not exclusively, but should include what was preached to us. The prayers that we pray alone and as households should echo the prayers that we heard the body pray. We should look forward to the coming worship with joy and practice the word received with humility. Those are the things that we need to do for worship, not to be half-hearted, but desired. Let me give you a practical thing. It's not in my notes, so I don't, I don't want to ramble, but let me give you a practical thing. How about this? Every morning before after you say your prayers, before, before you start reading the Bible through the year, just go over your, your worship journal notes and pray and ask the Lord to do that for you. Five or ten minutes. Start there and see if the Lord does not honor that and increase your desire for his worship. This doesn't have to be rocket science, brothers and sisters. We're after Christ, and he wants to be found. Fourth, Pray that the Lord will allow us to be satisfied in the uneventful, routine, constant, and regular worship of him. One of the things our hearts is so after is something new and novel. We want to be titillated and excited. That's what we want. It's the reason why Netflix exists, isn't it? So you can flip, 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 flip. You never really ever watch anything, but it's that high of just constantly seeing all that's new out there. Brothers and sisters, worship is not like watching your television. Worship is a holy act where we respond to God's goodness to us. We need to learn that the regular routine, which seems so boring and mundane, is exactly what God wants for us. It's predictable. It's reliable. It's faithful of him to do this. And it will nourish our souls. Know also... No, also, that means that as we gather together, everything is working against us to be satisfied in that. There's noise in the sanctuary, right? Our hearts are going to want to go after that. Is the noise wrong? No. Is our hearts wrong? Yes. Right? Work is going to eat at the, at the corners of your brain, things that you need to pay attention to, the groceries you need to get afterwards, the food you need to be prepared. Are those things going to try to distract us from what is so plain and ordinary? Yes. Are those things wrong? No. But worship is better. The reason why we fast and pray is to declare to the Lord, yes, my body needs food, but more than food, I need the Lord. Now, all of this seems so nonsensical. So nonsensical. 
It's, it's, it's not meeting what my heart craves. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, neglecting wholehearted worship will actually bring greater burdens and weariness to our lives. If we don't worship the Lord with our lives, we will worship something. Know that. There is no one on the face of the planet who isn't bowing down somewhere to something. The only thing then, other than the Lord to worship, is an idol. Listen to God's scathing rebuke of the idols. Isaiah 46, 1 through 2. Bel, that's a false god, bows down. Nebo, another false god, stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Do you hear that? The Israelites are living for false gods. They have to carry them around with them. They're making their traveling hard, and they can't even save them when they fall off the beasts. And yet, what will be the result when they give themselves to them? Captivity. Slavery. My favorite psalm, probably, I think it's the first one I memorized when I became a believer. Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What the scriptures are teaching us, brothers and sisters, if we're not going to give ourselves to the corporate worship of God and we give ourselves to worshiping anything and everything else all week long, you know what happens? We become blind, deaf, dumb, stupid, unable to speak truth. We become numb and unfeeling to God. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. Either we will have life in Christ or death in dumb idols made by human hands. You see, real satisfying life is the life of worship of God. And that's exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ would see us, would want us to see worship him of this even today. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How sweet a Savior we have that he would offer to be so near to us, sinful creatures, to relieve the burden of sin and idolatry in exchange for nothing more than blessed rest in him. And not just for now but for eternity in that great, great worship that will be found in heaven forever. Read the book of Revelation. How does it end? Endless worship and peace because of Christ. He is a great king, and the loving, fatherly fear of him will bring us life. Life. 
brothers and sisters. We turn to the second point, this pleading for your pastors. When you, when you look at the text, the failure at full-hearted worship in Israel started in the people's hearts, but it was exacerbated by the priests of the day. It wasn't just the hoi polloi, the common person out there having the problem. It was the very person offering the sacrifices. The, the repetitive work of hauling up the animals, and then washing themselves clean, and then having to remain separate from all these other things that other people could do was a wearisome thing to them. Think about it, an endless line of people coming up. And, and, and what do you have to do every time someone comes up? All right, let me look at the animal. Uh, is that perfect blame blemish? There's a spot in the back. Oh, what? oh that's just dust. Uh, let, me, let me make sure that the animal is exactly right. All right, now I got to check your heart. Tell me, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you broken his law? How, how can you may have atonement made for you? Can you imagine doing that for person? after person, after person, after person, day after day, week after week, year after year. And as a priest, they're standing there, and they're looking around, and they're going, look, we're doing this, we're trying to be faithful, but the Lord is not making Israel a great nation like it was under Solomon. Where's the wealth? Where's the prosperity? And even if he didn't do that, you know what? There's not great reform like in the day of Hezekiah. We don't see God's people fervent for him the way we want. And even worse, the long-form Messiah that we were, were so certain would come back when the temple was built, he hasn't appeared. Why keep going on? And so they scoffed, just like the people, at the worship of the Lord. And this is really the long history of Israel. There's this symbiotic relationship between God's people and their leaders. The people chose Saul, for example, because their hearts were sent against the Lord. They wanted a king like all the nations. But Saul also encouraged the people to faithlessness. Eli's sons were evil and oppressed the people of God, hindering his true worship, which then only emboldened them to greater sins. God's people and those who lead them in worship both need to pursue their Lord as one, the one love, the love as the father and a master, instead of trying to come to God as a means to another end. In Malachi's time, they'd grown cold, devoid of the love of God and the fervor for doing good. And the result was, that when the Lord was not properly worshipped for them, every other thing the priests desired was just unable to satisfy them. Uh, they were their life was actually particularly tied to the sacrifices. I don't know if you if you're aware of this or not, but um, from the sacrifice came their food. They only got to eat part of what was sacrificed. Um, their income came from the people in, in the form of money or of goods. So in a very practical sense, the declining of pure worship also meant that they lacked the best of the clothes and the food and the goods. But it's not just limited to that. You see, they also received the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, which in this text specifically is the loss of offspring and the threat of being taken away from the land and the Lord again. God takes his worship seriously. But lest we think that God 
took temple worship seriously and not worship today. Know that we don't have priests anymore, but pastors and elders to lead worship. And there are differences, be very clear, there are differences between the Old Testament priests and today's pastors. For example, the elders do not stand between the church and Christ. We aren't between you and God. That's not what we're doing. Rather, we serve the body by leading them to Christ in the act of worship. We put Christ before you. It's the reason why at the Lord's table, we don't stand in front of it, but behind it. We're offering or ministering Christ to you. But, but there is significant overlap. The pastorate is a calling and not simply another job. As Levi was called by God, so a pastor must be selected by Christ and acknowledged by the body. He must give himself up primarily to the bringing about and the strengthening of the worship of God's people. The man called must give himself to prayer and to study and the good of others at great cost to other goods, goods, lesser pursuits that he may want. He must sacrifice them in order to serve God's people. In brief, he must be one that especially watches his life and doctrine closely. For just as it was with the Old Testament priests, there is a great danger to God's people if God's ministers, if their hearts are not settled in the love of God expressed in worship. The curse that comes about when a pastor fails is primarily spiritual. The word in verse 3 is, I know the ESV translates it offspring. The word is actually seed. When the Old Testament priest failed, they could expect it to come upon the heads of their children. When a pastor fails, the seed of the gospel should not expect to grow up. His ministry should not be expected to bring about life-saving regeneration or life-changing renewal. The curse of half-hearted worship by a minister is a congregation that tends towards Pharisaism, rampant sin, cold-hearted worship. The pastor is not ultimately over the congregation, brothers and sisters, but when he fails to guard worship and gospel ministry, he's like Eve handing the poison fruit to Adam with it, the invitation to death. But this isn't the Lord's intent for his ministers, nor for his people. If the covenant with Levi was called one of life and peace because it pointed to Christ in shadows, how much more is the covenant of grace now that we see Christ clearly? The pastor is a means to point God's people to the life-saving person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is his sole calling. His prayers are to be saturated with grace as an example of the sweetness of our Savior. The preaching is to hold out the law and the gospel, the law to reveal sin, which is the enemy of worship, and that the law should then drive us to the gospel where we meet with such merciful tender-heartedness in our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The minister offers out the table and baptism in such a way as to guard it from presumption, but also to allure our souls by the fragrance of our lover, our husband, our Lord. And that may seem like a, such a simple task. 
brothers and sisters, you might, might think of it just as another job. If, if a pastor just gets enough training, if he just knows enough and enough practice, uh, maybe if he can arrange his schedule well enough, then all those things will happen. Brothers and sisters, your pastors need you to pray for them because our hearts are just as much again, about other things. Just like you have to prepare for worship, so do we. We are men like dust, just as you are. We're, we're tempted to trust in anything and everything other than Christ. We want other things than our master. We forget the love of our father. We can err in worship and coming half-hearted and cold. We're apt to think the worship of God weariness because you know what? It doesn't trans transform our lives into the paradise of heaven quickly. And it doesn't fix the congregation at warp speed. We, we labor all week long doing the same things over and over, repetitive tasks, and you don't see the immediate fruit in your own heart or in the congregation. Our elders must resist believing that preaching needs to be more practical, more therapeutic, more focused on our perceived needs rather than simply building us up in the most holy faith and stirring up fervent worship for God. You see, the cares for the minister's own belly and back, as well as those of our families, can make the temptation for gain off, the, off of the ministry a real threat. We are to be ambassadors of the gospel of Christ, but we're liable to fall in many ways unless the Lord Jesus Christ carries us along by the same grace each and every one in the congregation needs. In short, we run the real danger of being found to cause stumbling and corruption in our own hearts and in yours. So what are you to do? Pray that the pastors here would be fervent for Christ, that we would be about faith, and repentance in our hearts and in yours. And then pray, congregation, that you and I would submit to their leading, to leading us to value and treasure and live for the same things. You see, the only hope you and I have is the gospel. In Christ, there is a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. He is the pearl of great price to allure our souls away from the world. He gives life and life abundant, and it's found in his words. Jesus alone can feed our souls and quench our thirst for righteousness, and he can be found in corporate worship, the corporate worship of his people every Lord's Day as he meets with us by his spirit, caring for us and bearing us up all the way to heaven. He is the one we must all rely on to protect us from the evil and foolishness of our own hearts. And you know what? He delights to do so when we come to him humbly in prayer and to receive him as he is given in worship. Perhaps I could say this. The principal goal of this section, maybe the, the, the principle I want us to walk away with is this. While you're working hard, to lay hold of Christ in worship, don't only look to yourself. Pray for the elders to rightly prepare to lead us with, a cl with clarity, praying, preaching, teaching the gospel. 
Cry out to the Lord for your own household to lean into the means of grace and pray for the rest of this body not to go astray, but to diligently seek out the worship of the Lord. And now let's go do that very thing. Let's do that together as we turn to the prayer of confession and pardon. Let's confess our own sins and seek out forgiveness in Christ and by faith receive the assurance that he is the assurance of the Father's love. Let us pray.